Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Humility Gap podcast. I'm Bethan Willis, and throughout this series, I'll be talking to academics, politicians, and public figures to find out how we can become more open-minded. We'll be looking at the virtue of intellectual humility in order to help us really focus in on the habits and practices which can enable us to become more open-minded. Throughout the series, we'll be interspersing full-length podcasts with shorter cafe chat episodes with students and others who have been thinking about open-mindedness or intellectual humility from a particular perspective. In this episode, we talk to Anya Gleiser, an artist with a background in ecology who is studying for a Master's in Fine Art at Oxford. Anya talks about how her own understanding of open-mindedness has been changed both through her work in the art world, as a Russian living abroad, and as a member of the Global Leadership Initiative, a learning community run by the Oxford Character Project. During our conversation, we ask, how do we even know what open-mindedness means? Do we need to think about diversity in more complex or multi-layered ways? And we also discuss the importance of open-mindedness in relation to Christmas trees, and why shamanistic towns, oil fields and spiritual ecology might be more alike than you think. Anya brings us an artist's perspective on open-mindedness. We hope you enjoy. So I'm here today with uh, Anya and we're going to be talking about humility and open-mindedness in relation to the art. So welcome Anya. Thank you Bethan. Um, so you're an artist and you're working on your MA in Fine Art at the Ruskin School here in Oxford. Um, what does open-mindedness mean to you and how does it relate to the art world, do you think? What does open-mindedness mean to me? Well, it's already a complicated question because there's a certain amount of hubris involved in saying that I know what open-mindedness means and one of the things that I've realised during this course in, in, in Oxford, which I actually think is one of the wonderful parts of the MFA, and also by participating in the GLI. So that's is, the Global Leadership Initiative. Yeah, the Global yeah. Leadership Initiative, is um, how varied the definitions of open-mindedness are uh, for different people. And that sort of, even realizing that is a sort of first step maybe towards open-mindedness because, oh, because usually you assume you know what that means. And it's, very, it's actually very funny how many people have very different perspectives on that question. So what kind of um, perspectives do they have? What kind of perspectives? Well, um, during my time here as the MFA grade rep, um, there has been a very long-standing discussion um, about a sort of question that may appear trivial and appear trivial to me at first. Um, but ended up sort of uh, occupying discussion in a lot of our meetings. This was a question of the Christmas tree and whether the Christmas tree at the Ruskin would be an inclusive um, addition to the school building. Yeah, so initially, sort of Christmas tree, no Christmas tree, I sort of came at it from an environmental perspective of maybe it would be better to have a potted tree to not keep on buying them. Um, But it had been introduced as a motion to remove it as it was uninclusive to other faith groups that with Christianity. And initially, that sounded sort of like what you would expect to hear, that uh, representing one faith group... um, 
while omitting others is uninclusive and uh, many institutions have sort of avoided, especially schools, uh, religious symbols or any references to faith within their institutions. But there was um, quite a split about this Christmas tree issue uh, within the meetings. Um, interestingly enough, it also split the discussion on racial lines, which was uh, unexpected for me. Um, but as I listened to the discussion, there was a lot of opposition to removing the Christmas tree on grounds that it was the last sort of remaining symbol within the institution and in the university of uh, ritual and non-utilitarian celebration. So something that isn't um, done out of... I guess, uh, capitalist motives. It's not a monetary prize. It's a symbol that people can just gather around um, of a ceremony, of a ritual. And that then the argument also was that it wasn't necessarily Christian and that true inclusivity would look like including other symbols of religions, um, of other faith groups, because and this is what really kind of got me thinking is that the only culture that has been actively humanist and anti-religion has been our Western, white, European, Euro-American now um, culture, where I think almost without exception, other cultures have some basis in faith, ritual, and religion, and the removing of any aspect of that is actually well, at least this was presented as such, an imposition of the dominant culture over others. And I raised this question repeatedly with MFA um, and then within the Global Leadership Initiative group, um, and there was a similar split. And because of this, the question became ongoing, but why it was eye-opening for me is that there are so many different understandings of what inclusivity means, and there is a certain definite hubris of assuming you are the one to dictate that, especially from a position of privilege, um, of whiteness. Yeah, so I'm just providing that as one example, but there have been many, and this program has really challenged my ideas of these concepts in general, their sort of foundation basis and how much I know about them. So we can think we're being open-minded and inclusive sometimes, but actually we're just projecting um, our own biases again, just in a, a way that perhaps we're not so aware of. Is that what you're trying to well, say? That can happen. Exactly, that our perception of exclusion comes from within the sort of cultural blinkers that we already wear, uh, what inclusion or exclusion looks like, and that from a position of, say, from within an elite institution like Oxford, yeah, from a position of privilege, it becomes very hard to judge for other people um, how to include them, and that in that case, actually, perhaps a better course of action is to ask for their opinions, and that's where the true diversity comes in, because those opinions often diverge from what you had assumed, and their institutions are really challenged because there is an overall error that inclusivity is a great thing, but it isn't just about checking a box about race, gender, or sexual orientation. It is really about including a spectrum of ideas, and that is the real challenge. 
Yeah, and that's quite hard to come across, isn't it? So we were talking before recording this podcast about your um, participation in our Global Leadership Initiative over the course of the year. And you said one of the things that struck you about that group was that it did have a genuine diversity that perhaps you didn't encounter elsewhere. So can you tell us a little bit about that and how you as a group worked through that kind of diversity? Um, Yeah, I think... It's one of the things that really surprised me. I didn't know what to expect when I um, signed up for the GLI and I was sort of half second-guessing my decision. I was quite happy to be accepted because I didn't expect that either. But I've been in many groups that have overtly tried to be inclusive and uh, diverse, with quotation marks around that word, and have failed because they sort of were more concerned with checking boxes, perhaps, than actually... Uh, integrating and providing a space in which a diversity of ideas can coexist and I think that space is quite hard to create actually Um, because people have to feel safe in argument, in disagreement and I, I think that for most people a safe space is a space where everyone agrees with you and that's quite dangerous um, for the GLI I think that uh, the main things that it targeted a diversity of disciplines so there were people coming from engineering from business from politics from art that was a weird one that's me (laughs) from biology and environmental sciences and disciplines maybe uh, really shape the way that we think about the world as well as diversity of countries but the way that we are taught to think those pathways are actually in many ways what splits us is you get an artist group together. The conversation, even though artists are very kind of supposed to be diverse and open-minded, was usually much more homogenous than it was within the GLI meetings. And for me, it was a haven, sort of a refuge almost to get out of the very closed circle, maybe of my department, which is quite small and very insular, and to then kind of challenge, put the ideas that are being thrown around onto the table and get a different perspective. And perspective was very different within the GLI group. That was also a really good space to discuss, for example, the Christmas tree issue and other things that we have been bouncing around. And I think it, you guys, well, I, may, I don't know if it was you guys or the group itself, the cohort, but created an atmosphere where you wouldn't be afraid of judgment even when people disagreed with you because it wasn't a judgmental disagreement. It was a maybe more intellectual and that actually allows for you to change your opinion sometimes because you can see the other person's perspective and it was also slow there were so many different subjects that we covered and we had some time outside the GLI meetings as well so maybe those are some aspects that contributed to creating that kind of space. So that kind of community sounds a really important way to cultivate open-mindedness. Can we just push a bit more into why you think that community worked? So you've said it was slow, so maybe it built up over time before you started having those kind of discussions. Do you think the fact that you were together to think about your values, to think about what contribution you can make to the world, that gave you some kind of common purpose even within your diversity? Is that right? Or what, what were the kind of key things that you think made it work um, where maybe it wouldn't have in other, other I contexts? think, I mean, time is definitely of, of essence. I think that connections and actual, like on a deeper level you cannot really expect to understand another person without significant time it doesn't work in a heartbeat um, 
The other thing that I think really contributed was the channeling. It wasn't about us. It was about external issues. And this is something I tried to do in the Hapotate thing I was organizing before I came to Oxford as well. Um, which is divert the subject of conversation on something that everyone has some experience of, for example, humility or failure, um, to discuss that. And that's the ground on which everyone has something to contribute, and you can sometimes be very surprised by the contribution because you haven't expected that view of failure before. Um, and having these subjects of conversation that we could, we're all free to approach from different angles provided a meeting place and also a place from which to retreat. So it wasn't asking us to sort of immediately sacrifice our viewpoint in order to be in agreement with the collective or the whole, but it was a meeting ground. And so you mentioned there your hot potato initiative. So let's move um, slightly to talk about what you think artists particularly can contribute to open-minded conversation and tell us a little bit about this hot potato initiative that you began uh, during your time in Paris. Okay. Um, well, it's funny because I often find myself very between worlds. Like, um, I already said that I was brought up in Russia, and this is quite a conservative country and sort of going more and more conservative lately. Um, and then uh, being in the Western education system, uh, where I'm surrounded with much more liberal values and the different perspectives on the same issues, um, and then having to travel constantly between the two. So this kind of translation, I'm sort of all my life in a way obsessed with trying to get people to talk to each other when they disagree. It's something that I really care about because otherwise I wouldn't be able to unite my family and my own like sort of aspects of myself. And the hot potato thing came about quite serendipitously. Uh, after the Trump election, actually, we had... Uh, my partner and I had already moved out of Scotland right after Brexit because we weren't sure if we'd be able to stay. So, And I was seeing these instances of division and polarization everywhere. And then the sort of unexpected results, first of Brexit and of the Trump election in the United States, uh, were very shocking. And it sort of uh, just was an indicator that things had gotten quite out of hand to a point where I was no longer understanding where these divisions were coming from and sort of your internet and social media explodes with people who are friends screaming horrible things at each other about their political and sort of abstract ideas. Um, and I mean, my first uh, few 20 minutes I was reading this in the cafe when the news came out was a sort of existential despair, um, along with the waitress, we were both crying. and then. <laughs> I, I get sort of galvanized about this thing, and I thought, what can I possibly do? I'm not a politician. I'm not an activist, but I am an artist. And a lot of the time, you can feel quite at a loose end, and perhaps that is maybe, maybe the place where you have a bit of platform and a bit of power as an artist. Um, so what I thought is that this is all of these things are coming about through the division of people. Um, whether through political propaganda, social initiatives, 
corporate incentives, but people are being divided. Um, and my country has played a big role in that, I think, in the UK, unfortunately, and America. Um, but the only thing that you can do is start on a local level, start in the place where you are, and try to bring people together. And I don't even know if you could count this as an art initiative. My supervisor this year was absolutely sure that this is art. I'm not. I'm still unsure, but more confident now with his affirmation. But I started gathering the most random people I could, meaning people from the street, people I met by accident in the vaccination clinic, um, like the baguette seller, this old boss, um, to to discuss subjects that were neutral. So in that sense, it was like the GLI format. Like one of them was water and the other one was motherhood, if I remember correctly. And uh, we had several others that basically everyone had an experience of and often had a very strong interest and belief in belief in the importance of it because these are universal human needs and experiences. And then from this general conversation, the initial basis was to come and have a like big dinner like a, or a lunch in a shared space and have this as the subject of discussion, like as a prescribed subject, and to ask people to bring in text, poems, their songs, anything they wanted, or just their ears if they just wanted to listen. Um, and this is good to, we did in art spaces as well, just to promote a discussion. And then very slowly, when everyone was sort of on the same ground in their humanity, because all of these things are shared, water is a shared need, and motherhood is in almost all cases a shared experience, or an absence of is still an experience. And then from there, going into a more political stance, it is important because you have shared food. There is something very fundamental about the virtual of sharing food, which we also did. Um, food and drink and seeing each other in our humanness and occupying the same physical space together that actually allows you then to see from the other's perspective. And um, there was, for example, this woman who... Uh, and we were discussing something else. We were discussing motherhood. And she suddenly she had started crying, and and the discussion turned very abruptly into a discussion of Brexit. But she had voted for Brexit because her father had been dying in a hospital, and she had uh, wanted uh, that the money. She had believed that money would be like if the uh, Britain broke off of the European Union, that there would be more money diverted to the NHS and to help people like her father who wasn't getting the care he needed. And then she had not been able to talk to any of her friends about it because she had felt so ostracized after this decision that it has been this kind of weight and secret when she had done it in an, in an extreme situation where her father was dying and eventually passed away. And this burden, like, it was really unexpected because I wasn't expecting anything like that to happen. But also all of these people who were with were very, very different people came out to support her. Uh, not necessarily about saying that they were pro-Brexit, but there was a sudden understanding of the different motivations that had caused the vote and understanding of what was going on in general because most people, I know at least, were very baffled by both that vote and the vote in the United States. They hadn't seen it coming. But when you understand it from a human perspective, people come together and this sort of hatred that divides people stops. And maybe that is a way to practice inclusivity by getting people into the same space, starting from these non... Basically, not from starting, not starting from ideologies or ideas, but starting from the fact of our shared humanity.
and then um, going on into a discussion from there. Yeah, and do you think that building of community can deal with perhaps even more difficult issues? So, for example, if that woman had voted for Brexit um, for less emotive kind of reasons do you think people would still have been able to deal with that that they may not have agreed but they could have started to accept some of the reasoning or difference Um, behind that I think one of for example another sort of it wasn't even facilitated it was just two experiences I had back to back I was uh, doing this research on old shamanistic towns in Siberia this was the year before I came to Oxford Um, and to go there I was descending on a river with a bunch of basically men from their like late 40s to early 60s who were working on an oil field it was very remote and there's no other way to get there and I sort of had a friend of a friend of a friend who was like helped me organize this uh, rafting trip down to uh, Shamangara which is a mountain of the shamans and now abandoned villages that people used to live in like native Buryat people and so I was spending time with these very conservative working class uh, oil workers with very, very difficult lives, very intense labor, and most of whom had already had episodes of cancer as a result of their occupation. And um, right after that, it took about a week just to get out of that area, but I flew to England for a fellowship um, in spiritual ecology in this farm, I think in something called Derbyshire, um, Derbyshire. Yeah, but uh, to discuss spiritual ecology and social justice with a bunch of people from London, mostly, mostly from London, as you can imagine, extremely, extremely left wing. Um, and it was funny because what I feel like the point of suffering between these people actually had a linked, maybe shared cause. But if they were ever brought into a room and asked to have a political discussion, they would be at each other's throats. Um, And I had had to kind of adapt. It was actually, I was very scared that I wouldn't be able to turn 180 so quickly. And the first few days in the Spiritual Ecology Fellowship, I I sort of remained very silent because I was afraid that I would step on someone's feet and just not be able to switch my mentality quickly enough. But in the end, the cancer from which these men were suffering or had suffered their loneliness in their occupation. Um, of course, there's a huge amount of political propaganda and sort of this Russian news fed into what they believe. Um, but in the end, the need for companionship, clean water, health, I think those were very much shared values and trying to negotiate their perspectives, which were quite much as homophobic, um, xenophobic, and sort of always checks all these boxes um, with the spiritual ecology folk um, who in some way would have seen them as almost barbaric, but in another way were so, in such a more privileged position to be able to judge and were actually not in contact with the environment they in many ways were seeking to protect Um, whereas these guys worked directly in it they were like on the ground in these oil fields in the middle of nowhere in native land Um, it became it's a very it's much more complicated question than one would first assume and I think picking sides is futile I think that an activity that at least I feel called to do is trying to go between and communicate how there is actually like the side is it's not a question of sides and that we 
are really like if you approach the questions from a standpoint of our humanity, our shared suffering, um, we can find solutions that are much more all-encompassing and less exclusive. Um, so that's what I was trying to do there. Great. So should we move on to think about um, open-mindedness and this uh, word intellectual humility in terms of habits and practices? What habits and practices do you think are crucial to developing um, greater humility and hopefully open-mindedness alongside that? I think for me, one of the most important things, at least as an artist, is to travel into other people's worlds. And I mean, not look it up online, not do secondhand research, but to go literally immerse yourself, uh, whether you're, whatever your subject of study is, to go there and to spend time living with whatever you're reflecting, whether it's human or non-human, if it's a human community living within it, um, and participating in it and listening all around, just like being open ears before drawing any of conclusions and to any extent possible to sort of not bring your assumptions and your baggage with you. Go light and go to the place. And I think occupying the places, occupying, well, this is a sort of cliche, but occupying the shoes of uh, the person with whom you wish to communicate before you start communicating is really, really important. That is one practice. So whenever I'm doing an artwork about something, I will try to go there physically um, and spend as much slow time without agenda there as possible. I think then uh, if you're ready within a place or you're presenting, say, an artwork uh, that is controversial, that uh, is receiving some backlash, to try to find, first find, like listen to the person until you find points of connection, points on which you actually agree before jumping into disagreement. Um, I think that sometimes I talk a lot, you can tell, talking in this podcast, but um, the places from which we can, I think, access access to other people's ideas is when we stop talking. It's ironic, so we have to keep talking. Um, well, maybe that's a good stumbling. place for us to stop. Yeah, maybe. Maybe I should um, just shut up now. So stop talking is possibly another top tip for yeah. learning to be intellectually humble and open-minded. Thank you so much, Anya, for talking to us about art and open-mindedness. That's been great. <laughs>